Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Kevin McDonald. Professor McDonald is professor in the department of Professor Emeritus of Psychology in the Department of Psychology um, at California State University, Long Beach. Kevin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for for coming on. We appreciate the opportunity to have you. So um, you and I, um, for those listening, just as some background on the on this discussion, I contacted you because um, I did an interview with Nathan Kaufness, which those of you listening will will know about by the time this is released, um, where we discussed his debate with Kevin McDonald and specifically the last installment, uh, at least the, the the last installment that Nathan claims there's going to be from his end, which is a paper published um, earlier this year in January of 2023 um, called Still No Evidence for a Jewish Group Evolutionary Strategy, in which Nathan Kaufness makes a number of claims regarding the uh, Jewish Group Evolutionary Strategy that is proposed by yourself. Um, and so he says that, you know, there's an anti-Jewish narrative that's part of this, that a lot of Jewish success can be explained by what he calls the, the, the default hypothesis. And of course, you yourself, not going into all of the tenets of the debate, you can find, for those interested, um, uh, documentation of the debate that's been going on between Kevin and Nathan, uh, both on Nathan's website as well as Kevin's website right now. Um, but just to frame it, um, you know, Nathan has claimed that there's a sort of default hypothesis that explains Jewish success. You claim that the default hypothesis is insufficient. Why is the default hypothesis insufficient? The, the, uh, the default hypothesis, essentially, that Jewish IQ and urban residency explain the whole thing. Um, and I, I try to show uh, in my uh, articles, first of all, that uh, Jewish IQ is important. I, I agree. Uh, but it's not, it's not the complete explanation. And uh, uh, the fact is, at, at, at any level of IQ, at least through 150, 160, mm -hmm. there are more non-Jews in America than Jews with that IQ. And if you think about the the occupations, the occup even if there are some Jewish geniuses that are off the map, which may be the case, uh, that doesn't explain Jewish influence because the Jewish influence comes from the vast uh, activist networks and so on. And the people, uh, you know, who have made some money, People who have, uh, you know, achieved can, can, you know, occupy professional type positions in our society, and uh, that's the that's where where the where the debate should be. And I don't see that he's had a response to that really. Um, he, uh, and I also uh, have argued that. Um, one of the, one of the big deals, and, and I'm surprised he did, but he never even cited my book on individualism. Uh, it's never mentioned there. Um, uh, Western societies are uniquely individualist. Jewish culture, mm -hmm. from its origins, was uh, very collectivist. Uh, and when I talk about Jewish evolutionary strategy, it really is referring to my first book, which is subtitled "Jewish Jews." Judaism as a as a group evolutionary strategy, you know, since the Enlightenment, Judaism Judaism gotten very complicated. 
and and you have a lot of different uh, sects of Judaism. Uh, you you have uh, um, you know core uh, um, you have Jewish groups going off in different directions. You have the Reform and the Conservative. You have Jews who completely abandon any religion. They're just uh, and they may have some other ideology or no ideology, or they may just be, um, you know, Zionist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's complicated. And, and you don't have it like in, in traditional Jewish society, you had strong barriers against intermarriage. Um, and uh, that that has decreased substantially, obviously. Um, and uh, you had strong penalties for for. Uh, for that, and and there was strong internal social control. So, um, uh, so for example, you know, if if a Jew didn't pay his taxes, if a Jew, you know, infringed on a monopoly of another Jew, the the community would uh, come down on him, and uh, they could do a lot of things to him. They could they could exile him. They could uh, cut off his family. I mean, if you married someone who wasn't a Jew, your, your family was completely ostracized uh, for generations. Uh, and that kind of thing. So the, the Jewish evolutionary strategy mainly applies to that first book. But the fact is that, that Jews have maintained a, a group identity, a culture, uh, and they are very influential in contemporary society, uh, whatever you want to call it. And um, so that's what I, I, I worked on. I worked on is mm-hmm. Jewish influence uh, and, and tried to, uh, you know, f- flesh that out. I also talk a lot about Jewish personality characteristics. And I wrote a paper recently, why are Jews so influential? And you know, there's no question that IQ is important uh, to that. Uh, but there's it's also personality traits. I mean, first of all, they can, they can cooperate so well. A big part of culture of critique is simply uh, being able to, to engage in ethnic networking. How, you know, you look at someone like Boas and Freud and, uh, the Frankfurt School, and, and you see the, the, the overwhelming pr- uh, proportion of Jews, and they're cooperating with each other, they cite each other, they, you know, they're they funded by Jewish organizations, and that sort of thing. And um, I'm expanding on that greatly, and, and I'm revising culture to take right now. Um, but uh, that that's the point, that that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated now, but, mm. uh, but Jews remain very influential. So, uh, you know, you look, just look at the Gaza war here, uh, what's going on, and, and you see, uh, you know, wall-to-wall support in, in Congress, really, the Biden administration, only a tiny minority. Uh, and the fact is Jews have, have always been very influential, even though they've, they've always been a small percentage of the society. You mm-hmm. look at uh, Jews in, um, you know, in, in Spain in the 15th century, uh, prior to the Inquisition, and even after the Inquis- Inquisition. And um, Jewish influence in America certainly hasn't all, hasn't been always the same. I mean, the, the Jewish activist organizations were deeply involved in trying to prevent the immigration law of 1924, but they failed. Uh, Jews were not as powerful as they became later. And, um, you know, so J- Jewish influence gradually increased after World War II, especially during the 1960s. So I have a chapter on Jews in the left from the 1960s of really emphasizing that because I sort of lived through it. And um, so you have to you know, take a dynamic view of Jewish influence and how it's working at any given time. Um, so IQ is not enough. And uh, a, a point that he makes, he, 
he talks about Jews aren't particularly ethnocentric. Well, you know, I can see it, but say, the reason he says that is that Jewish rates of intermarriage are very high now. True. But there are a number of things about that. I mean, first of all, Jews are living in an individualist culture. That means they go to school, they work with, with non-Jews. You don't have this strong kind of uh, you know, pressures emanating from the Jewish community anymore about intermarriage. And, and people, people get married on a, for a lot of different reasons. Um, they get married because they, they are in, in love, or they get married because they have similar personality interests, uh, characteristics. And uh, so there's just a lot of uh, reasons why people would get married. And it doesn't mean that they're not uh, identified as themselves as Jewish. I mean, you look at someone like Sasha Barrett Cohen. He's an activist for the ADL. He's also intermarried. And there are a lot of these people. And the thing about ethnocentrism is, is what ethnic uh, is what evolutionary psychologists call a facultative mechanism. That mm-hmm. is, it, it tends to surface more during times of crisis. So one of the things I really noted back in writing about the 19, I, I didn't write about it, but I reading Jewish writing about uh, 1967-1973 wars is that people would say, I didn't know how Jewish I was. And so you have a, a, a rabbi saying that. I mean, and as uh, Silverman said, this is not just a, uh, you know, some guy off the street. This is a prominent Jew who has been Jewish all his life and they're big activists in the community. Uh, and the same thing's happening now in the Gaza war that, that um, you know, that uh, um, strong upsurge of Jewish identity Strong upsurge in, in uh, because of the because of the perceived threat, perceived threat, yeah. Western Jews, by the way. In my first book, I have a section on, on Jewish sort of bunker mentality, where Jews would perceive the, the world around them as very threatening, mm-hmm. um, and and they would have uh, escape tunnels and they would have other things, and of course, it was threatening oftentimes, uh, and and so there's a sort of permanent place in the Jew, in a lot of, mind of a lot of Jews, I'd say, that, uh, that they're under grave danger. But uh, as Arthur Hertzberg wrote in 1979, the immediate reaction of American Jewry to the crisis of the 67 war um, was far more intense and widespread than anyone could have foreseen. Many Jews would never have believed the grave danger to Israel could dominate their thoughts and emotions in, uh, to the exclusion of everything else. So there's an upsurge of, of ethnic identity, and uh, there's a recent article on the Gaza where, where um, this this writer, a woman, says our lives have changed forever. We've had to change not just the way we think of Israel, I think of Britain. Uh, the last month exposed an ugly understanding what we thought was a tolerant society. How could we safely share a Jewish sincere? And that, of course, there, you know, you have these demonstrations, pro-Palestinian demonstrations throughout the West and throughout uh, the Arab world as well. Uh, because of this. Um, so Jews are, we are familiar with tragedy, threat, and betrayal. Always make sure you have your passport in date, my mother used to tell me. And that's that bunker mentality, that sense of, of threat, permanent threat. Um, it's, fortunately, she says, today we are very far from escape, but the recent rise in anti-Semitism, and the ADL sense has been like 400% increase in anti-Semitism. Um, but as they say, in, in the darkest times, she says, uh, is when the embers of Jewish spirit burn brightest amidst the tragic loss of life and bloodshed. There's a revolution starting. There's a revolution in Jewish identity and unity. 
So synagogues have never been fuller. Uh, she quotes some rabbi says that we've not seen our synagogue this full since the Pittsburgh shooting, which was a tragic shooting in Pittsburgh. Um, and then uh, charities distribute thousands of Shabbat candles every Friday, WhatsApp groups encourage songs, and so on. So it's a big upsurge in Jewish activism, along with a upsurge in anti-Semitism. Uh, and and that that's you know really a, a common story I think throughout history that that when things are going well it's not like Jews are obsessed with it or anything but uh, and and they may they may do things like uh, more likely to intermarry more likely to identify with the culture around them but then you have a crisis like with Jews in Israel and it all changes rapidly. Mm, okay, okay, and so one variation of this is you know. Uh, you won't find it to, to create the contrast, as you're saying, with um, with ethnocentrism, the claim of ethnocentrism is that when there's troubles going on in Ireland, for example, you don't see a lot of Irish Americans, uh, you know, freaking out about Ireland, having Ireland on their mind all the time, advocating vociferously throughout the country uh, and, in, and in Congress for Irish, you know, Irish interests. That, that's is, correct. Yeah, that's an important point, kind of which I should, I should have made that point. But yeah, it, it's a it's a good point, and and uh, so ethnocentrism is sort of fungible. I mean, it it, it comes and goes uh, mm. more or less. And uh, I remember I remember reading about about Jews in in Soviet Union uh, during the nineteen twenties, I guess, and they were saying just how you know anti-Semitism was the furthest thing from the mind because they 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 were part of the elite. They they were doing well. And uh, they weren't, uh, you know, obsessed with all that. But then, you know, after World War II, uh, you know, they started to be replaced in these positions. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a sense of anti-Semitism. A lot of Jews uh, left the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, there was a big movement uh, uh, to Israel and the United States and elsewhere. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it changes over time. And uh, it's something that... Uh, the other thing is that well, well so I, I I guess I guess one of the one of the issues then with with um and this facultative behavior is uh trying to figure out a good way to measure it then um, yeah because, you, you, know, you, have, you have to do that I, well, the, I the fundamental the fundamental issue is that Nathan has proposed that okay we can look at intermarriage rates we can look at um you know indicator strong indicators that people are choosing to continue to reinforce their Jewish identity or not. And you're saying, well, it really only matters during moments of crisis because that's when it sort of gets, it, it's like a latent um, variable that comes out in, in times of need. Um, and so the issue is then when would be an appropriate time to make a measurement and what would be a, a reasonable standard to measure it against? Yeah, that, that would be a, a good way to think about it. Um, and then, you know, the, the reality is that even when things are going well, you know, organizations like the EDL uh, are always trying to sort of paint a picture of crisis because it's in their interest. Well, to they, they, they need you to be freaked out all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, they want that. And, and you, right now I get their emails and they're, they're, they're definitely pushing for more money and all that. And the other thing is it's not. The point is not, uh, are Jews in general ethnocentric? Uh, the point is whether yeah, you have an activist community of Jews 
that is effective. I mean, I'm looking at trying to figure out Jewish power. So I want to see where it's lo- where it's uh, located, who's doing it, how mm-hmm. influential they are, uh, and uh, how it works. Well, this uh, is this is why this is why I wanted to speak with you. Um, it's because actually getting to the bottom of this answer is part of tackling anti-Semitism as such, right? If anyone is serious about the problem of anti-Semitism and you think it's a real issue and a threat, then you would want to know a, you'd want to have in the back of your mind an explanation for Jewish overrepresentation in all kinds of fields and successful industries and so on and so forth. Right. And the fact that, um, I just returning to my original question about why the default hypothesis has proposed by Kaufness uh, is insufficient. Um, the the answer that he gives, I found also to be somewhat uh, unsatisfactory, although I'm not, although to say that doesn't imply that I necessarily like your answer any better. Um, that is, you both attribute the success not only to the IQ, but also to a set of unique personality traits, right, that are very uh, prevalent among Jews. And I agree that there are probably, there have to be personality traits that also account for the outstanding success independent of high IQ. Because if you just compare them to high IQ whites or high IQ Chinese or high IQ Indians, um, they seem to be able to do much more with a higher IQ than the general person that you would pull from a very a various uh, IQ bracket, right? Like a one a one thirty Jew just seems to be better at making something substantial out of it than a lot of one thirty Chinese, and this is something that's commented on a lot in corporate culture in America. Um, they don't really think about it in those terms because corporate culture in America is so anti-white now that they just classified the Jews as whites and attribute the overrepresentation of Jews as part of the overrepresentation of white men. But the thing is that, um, you know, it's well known, for example, that a lot of um, East Asians are not, don't end up in leadership positions, for example. Um, in I work in the tech world, so in, in like Silicon Valley. This is a known phenomenon. And the only real explanation they have especially because East Asians actually have a higher IQ than um, European whites, is that uh, is that there's like somehow there's a personality trait where they're not assertive enough or they're not, uh, maybe it's because they're not as verbally tilted or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the reason why there are so many of them in this industry, but they don't seem to be uh, in leadership or management positions as often as you would expect from um from their baseline IQ. And so I guess Jews have kind of the inverse problem, which is that there there is a kind of need to uh to explain the overwhelming Jewish success. Now, just to give Nathan's point credit, he does bring up certain things that are more or less objective, like the number of Jewish chess champions, uh the Jewish Nobel Prize winners, the Jewish Fields medalists. These are things that we are assuming are not very gameable by ethnic nepotism um, and could point towards a more complicated set of personality or mental faculties That's right. that um, 
that have something to do with you know strategizing or um or maybe it's a the ability to focus on something or 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 something along those lines um but i guess the the real puzzle here is that no one has really been able to give a really good explanation we just can observe the phenomenon well um you know i i read uh, that part of his paper and i wasn't satisfied with his personality stuff i didn't even get much out of it i in my previous life as a psychologist, I was a personality psychologist. It was my thing. I published a lot of, a lot of papers on on personality, um, and development of personality, and and I, I did talk about Jewish personality in my first book. I talked mm-hmm. about conscientiousness and emotional intensity as being important. Now those are two uh, biological systems related to personality. Conscientiousness is one of the so-called big five. Uh, emotional intensity feeds into neuroticism and other traits, uh, but it, it's a, like a really intense, um, you know, the uh, view of the world where you you're uh, extremely involved. And I make the point at one point that that Jewish activism is like a full court press; it's like twenty four seven all the time, and and uh, they're going to pull out all the stops and they're going to you know find all the all the ways to advance their interests. But conscientiousness, or the other two, I, I want to talk about both, but conscientiousness, it, it means you, you pay attention to detail. You uh, are, are concerned about upward mobility. Um, you, can, you monitor your, your behavior uh, to ensure compliance with restrictions. So, so uh, you know, in the traditional Jewish community, you have to really pay attention to a lot of different laws. Um, and, and that would be expected to strengthen the conscientiousness system. It's what I call system-specific environmental influences. Uh, and, uh, and actually, a lot of people have theorized that the conscientiousness is one of, one of the Jewish personality traits. But the other one, the person is affect intensity. They are prone to intense emotional experience, both positive and negative. Individuals high on the trait of affect intensity, more complex social networks, more complex lives including multiple, even conflicting goals. They're prone to fast and frequent mood changes and lead to varied and variable emotional lives. Uh, critically, it, it is related to cyclothymia, which is uh, the clinical version related to elation and depression, mm. bipolar affective disorder, neurotic symptoms, somatic complaints, and so on. And so uh, then I go through the, 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 uh, the psychological research. I mean, if you go back even to the 19th century, uh, Jewish and Gentile psychiatric workers uh, uh, had the idea that Ashkenazi Jews had relatively sensitive, highly reactive nervous systems, thus making them more prone to diagnoses of hysteria, manic depression, neurasthenia. Um, more recently, uh, Gershon and, and Leibowitz, 45% of 22 patients had bipolar patients, had bipolar affective disorder. This is in Israel compared to 90% in the study of Northern European populations. Within Israel, they cited a study in Hebrew, affective disorders were much more prevalent than the Ashkenazi Jews. So, and I go on like that. But, um, but the point is that, that affect intensity is linked to creativity and the manic phase of the bipolar affective disorder. And so during episodes of mania, the person has a grandiose self-image. Uh, I'm brilliant. I can save the world. If only people would listen to me. So I remember reading something that, that whenever uh, there's a crisis going on, these manic depressive people will call up uh, 911 and uh, the emergency people and say, I, I can figure this out, you know, and all that. 
Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but they're also goal-directed activity, obsessively working on a project all night, excessive involvement in pleasurable activity, buying sprees, sexual gratification, racing thoughts. These are um, the, the, the the behaviors of uh, bipolar disorder, to be clear. It's an affect of disorder. That, that, mm-hmm. That's pathology. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what we're saying is it's more common among Jews. And then what you yeah. have to think about is... Um, Depressive part is just the opposite, first of right. all, that, that a lot of people may be high in emotionality but not meet the criteria uh, of psychopathology. It's easy to see that people with moderately high on positive emotionality, hypomanic or normal, but close to the manic range, would be high achievers. They would work persistently toward goals. They'd be very self-confident, high self-esteem. Such people gravitate to leadership positions or whatever organization they're in. And it's easy to see that they would become gurus, establishing a devoted following like charismatic rabbis in traditional Jewish communities, like Boas, Freud, Trotsky, and so on, discussed in cultural critique. And I was always struck by this quote from, uh, from uh, where is that? Uh, Albert Lindemann, who was a professor of history, I was a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara. He says, if one accepts that anti-Semitism was most potently driven by anxiety and fear, as opposed to contempt, contempt uh, which is true, then the extent to which Trotsky became a source of occup- preoccupation with anti-Semites is significant. Here, too, Paul Johnson's words in his book, The History of the Jews, are suggested. He writes of Trotsky's demonic power, the same term revealingly, used repeatedly by others in referring to Zenobia's rhetoric um, or, or Zuritsky's ruthlessness. Um, they were both early Bolsheviks. Trotsky's boundless self-confidence, his notorious arrogance, his sense of superiority were other traits often associated with Jews. Fantasies there were about Trotsky and other Bolsheviks, but there were also realities around which the fantasies grew. And uh, so then I have other examples. Uh, One of the examples from Cultural Critique is Max Schachman, who was a Jewish uh, Trotskyist, um, Trotsky, whatever. Uh, You know, he started out as as a... communist uh, moved over to the sort of neo to a proto neocon uh, movement had in bad, ended up with big influence in the democratic party and the labor movement um you know that really helping to switch the democratic party from a party of white southerners and and labor and sort of labor movement to the multicultural party that we see today uh and then uh, I talk about leo strauss um for example uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb says, there are many excellent teachers. They have students. Strauss had disciples. The mm. group had a, a, trappings of a cult. After all, there's a secret teaching, extreme seriousness of those who are cult initiates. He established his role as a guru to worshiping disciples. Now, you just don't see that with Chinese guys. And, and, and the same, or, or white people, the same IQ, at, at least not as commonly. Mm. And uh, Fritz, Fritz Whittle said about uh, about Freud, he said, the faithful disciples of Freud, this is 1924, regard one another's books as of no account. They recognize no authority but Freud's. They rarely read or quote one another. When they quote, it's from the master, that they may get the pure milk of the word. Um, so that's the idea, that, 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 that those are important personality traits. But I also talk about Jewish aggressiveness. Um, but affect intensity is very important. It, it really affects the the, the tone mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, Jewish activism, the intensity of it, 
And that's very important. I mean, find uh, um, the hell happened to that. And what would be the, uh, you know, just keeping in mind that this is part of supposedly a group evolutionary strategy, what would be the, uh, I guess there's an individual benefit perhaps, but there's also a group benefit involved as well. Yeah, I would say that. And, and if you look at traditional Jewish communities, they always centered around a rabbi who was a charismatic leader. Mm. And, and, and charismatic, and prototypically, think about the, uh, the uh, Hasidic Jews, people like uh, Schneerson, um, Menachem Schneerson and people like that. You know, they've got these people who just worship them. They want to touch the clothes. They want to touch the food that they're reading. Uh, and 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 that kind of thing, and uh, so it, it, that's very common in traditional, really uh, in traditional Jewish communities. It, it's so a worshiping thing, and uh, so it, it's uh, I think it's a strong tendency in traditional Judaism, uh, and uh, but the African test is important. They, you know, it's a pull out all the stops, massive responses on Jewish issues, which we're seeing now. You see all these billionaires saying they're not going to give any more money to Harvard. They got the president of the Penn and the Board of Regents uh, president uh, fired from their jobs. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very, uh, very uh, pervasive kind of thing. Um, okay, so, I mean, we, we have uh, – actually, that's pretty good. You mentioned conscientiousness. You mentioned affect intensity. Those are two traits that, as far as I know, Nathan has not brought up, or at least he didn't in the papers that I read. No. Um, the other, I guess, consideration that he has as a potential explanation is the high concentration of Jews in urban areas, you know, and um, essentially that, you know, people living in urban areas have a higher potential to capitalize on their... Um, on their their skills and abilities and networks and so forth and this also is you know in contrast to gentiles who really were not highly concentrated in urban areas uh until very recently that's true i i don't know any real data on that um but uh yeah i mean i suppose uh to some extent when you look at the uh New York intellectuals, they were concentrated in uh, urban areas. Um, but, you know, a lot of Jewish activism has been in the academic world, uh, which is not necessarily urban. And, uh, um, well, you have Vienna, for example. Um, yeah, Thrive is in Vienna. London. I mean, a lot of yeah. prominent Jewish intellectual circles come out of these cities. Yeah, they do. Mm. I, I just don't know, you know, to what extent that's uh, important. You know, that you know, maybe I'm wrong about that. I just don't uh, see a, a strong connection there. But uh, okay. uh, it, it's uh, something to think about. But again, I don't see any compelling reason to think that that is the critical uh, issue there. Mm. I mean, I, th I think the, I think we, you mentioned verbal ability. That's important. Yeah. I think you know that that, that is something that is linked to upward mobility uh, in Western societies more than is uh, performance IQ, the more spatial uh, ability. Mm. And Jews are higher on that. I mean, I struck me in my first book I, I read, I, I wrote on, on Judaism, I wrote about IQ, that, that uh, the difference was there. Uh, Richard Lynn found the same difference. He had a lower average IQ than I did. 
uh, estimated. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it, you know, it, it's there. The well, other trade, uh, go ahead. Well, uh, yeah, before you get into the next trade, I'll just say that, you know, you and Nathan acknowledge the verbal tilt as well. Um, and at least in my circles, this is well known um, that Jews do have, Ashkenazi Jews have an actually a higher than average verbal IQ and a lower than average geospatial. Right. Um, and it really wasn't until recently, you know, again, I'm in the tech world, so it's very common to sort of deride people that are verbally tilted because they're seen as um, mathematically incompetent. Yeah. But it wasn't until recently that someone with a very high geospatial could actually capitalize on it in a tremendous way yeah. by going into tech or going into the sciences or something like that. There weren't a lot of industries where being exceptionally high in geospatial was going to give you an exceptionally high return um, until very recently. Whereas verbal is much older and much more um, generalizable and um, allows you to climb social hierarchies and do all kinds of other interesting things. Um, I I think it's also slightly more professions like a legal profession. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to make that point about about the verbal is um, it's just extraordinarily beneficial, especially if you're in a social context. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think it's a critical aspect of Jewish uh, upward mobility. And there, uh, you think about you know Jewish activists; they're in a verbal world. Oh, aggressiveness, uh, mm. which is uh, probably linked to that to some extent, but it is different. Uh, and um, it, it, winds up differently on personality uh, um, questionnaires. But uh, basically, they're being aggressive and pushy is part of the stereotype. I, 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 you know, going back to the early part of the 20th century, uh, Hans Eysenck uh, claims that, that they are rated more aggressively. And um, you see other people commenting on Jews in the early 20th century and saying that, that, that uh, you know, Edward A. Ross is the, Sociologist at the University of Wisconsin, he says, no other immigrants are as noisy, pushful, pushing and disdainful the rights of others. Authorities claim East European Hebrews feel no reverence for law as such and willing to break any ordinance to find a way. Insurance uh, companies fi- uh, scan a Jewish fire risk more closely, the whole so called Jewish lightning. And uh, credit men say the Jewish merchants are also slippery, will get rid of their debts. Um, and uh, Lying for lying, Democrats have a bad reputation. The uh, readiness of Jews commit perjury. But uh, Albert Lindemann says the same thing about uh, Jews and perjury in Tsarist Russia. And uh, at times, he's been noted by Jews themselves uh, that, uh, that uh, there's a survey of Jews in Baltimore and say two thirds of them responded that Jews are more pushed. I don't think this is the, the greatest data here. But mm. I think it's correct, uh, essentially. Um, and uh, you think about how aggressive Jews have been. I mean, uh, going back to the 1920s, Henry Ford commented on how Jews were so energetically trying to get rid of Christianity in the public square and uh, get, you know, getting Christmas car- uh, carols out of public schools and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, uh, I say the prototypical example of Jewish aggressiveness is, in my view, the, the uh, attempt to change the, the demographics of America uh, in, in a, a transformatively, really, uh, with immigration policy. 
Okay, well, let's let's talk about that. So, okay, yeah, one of the one of the components that uh, Kaufness outlines as the core tenets of your of the anti-Jewish narrative is that Jews are responsible for liberalism and all as well um, mass immigration to the U.S. And so, changing of the demographic profile of the country from a majority white Anglo Anglo country um, into what it is now, which is sort of a, a big soup. Um, and uh, he points to, you know, the, uh, the 1965, 64 Immigration 65. Act yeah. and says, you know, part of the, and, and I'm more or less sympathetic to this view um, that, you know, there, there's none of this stuff gets done without the participation of a lot of Gentiles. Um, and so, you know, like I encounter, for example, I encounter white nationalists on Twitter and, and other places who will say things like, you know, oh, you know, the Jews have been doing this to us. They've been doing that to us. They've been flooding our country with uh, lots of foreigners and so forth. They've been lowering our birth rate and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, I, my response is always like, well, no, it's not just them. Certainly, there are Jews part of those movements, just like there are Jews as part of every major political movement. Um, it's also a lot of your fellow Gentiles who've been doing this to you. <laughs> and so I, I just I find it very vacuous to attribute so much agency um, in bringing about these changes to such a small portion of people because there's so many other um whites that also need to be involved yeah i get it uh and um but one thing that he ignores completely is my book on individuals that mm -hmm. western societies are individualist and, and so they they tend to uh be more liberal naturally you might say and i know the subtitle of my book is um well uh the book is titled individualism and and the uh Western liberal tradition. So I can go way back uh, that we are ethno, less ethnocentric that, and that uh, um, we are certainly prone to, to media messages. We are prone to academic messages. So in, in my writing on immigration, I try to take a broad uh, view here that uh, you, you formally, there's no question there was a Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite when I was growing up. Um, and uh, uh, Eric Hoffman describes, uh, he's a professor at, uh, at the University of London. Yes. Um, and uh, he talks about the rise and fall of Anglo-America. Uh, Hollinger, the transformation of the religious demography of American Jews, life by Jews in the period from the 1930s to the 1960s, Jewish influence on the trans and secular culture and so on. And that, that, you know, these people aren't, you know, attributing everything to Jews by any means. But there's no question there was a, a rise of Jews uh, in the 1960s. I sort of witnessed it in philosophy in the 1960s. I was a graduate student in philosophy at that time. And um, Lipset and Ladd talk about uh, survey data, 60,000 academics in 1969. There's a critical period at the World War II where they really uh, went in uh, to these elite universities. And uh, you, you know, when you combine that, uh, they, these these uh, Jewish faculty were more productive. They they published more. 
Uh, they were more uh, on the left, uh, more radical. And um, so they're more influential. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the academic world is a top-down kind of thing. So the people at the top determine the future because you get a PhD at Harvard and you go to the University of California maybe. And then if you're at the University of California, you go to the University of Colorado or, or Colorado State or something. And, uh, you know, so it's top-down like that. So determining getting the, the, the top position is very important. And then you also have um, you have media influence. At the time when I was growing up, Jews owned all, all the big media, whether Hollywood Studios, all television networks. And uh, there was a major push at that time from the Frankfurt School uh, activists uh, to, uh, you know, basically vilify white ethnocentrism. And, and there's no question the media message have, have influence. Uh, that uh, well, also, so the 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 Frankfurt School was responsible for formulating their um, the authoritarian personality, right? And essentially trying to claim that uh, attach a stigma to any right wing ideas or positions as the form of some kind of mental illness. Yeah. Um, and you know. I guess they were relatively explicit about the intentions of their project. Uh, and they did view the United States as a potential fascist, um, uh, like, like a, almost like a crypto fascist capitalist democracy. Oh yeah. That was, that was just waiting to become Nazi Germany at any point in time. Um, yes, they were very clear about that recent. Yes. And the, the issue with, with, with talking about the Frankfurt school in these terms, especially when you start, discussing you know the cold war and anti-communism and the media that that came out of that um is it's unclear whether they were actually successful right at you know subverting american um uh ethnic and cultural identity i guess that's sort of in dispute yeah i suppose it is uh but there's no question the frankfurt school the main focus of attack they switched from sort of typical Marxist to mm -hmm. uh, really vilifying white ethnocentrism. That was the, the evil. You know, they, they saw uh, America as possibly being like uh, German in the 1930s. Right. And, and I still think you see that, you know, I think the Trump, the, the fear of Trump is, is very similar to that. And in the 2016 election and 2020, all these warnings of Trump is the Fuhrer and, and, uh, just recently, when Trump talked about poisoning the blood, well, all these Nazi uh, images came up in the media. Um, so I, you know, it's it's uh, there's a, a gradual uh, shift in the power structure of this country. Uh, there is a decline of that uh, Anglo uh, wasp elite uh, that was basically uh, they were finished by the end of the 1950s. I don't think they knew it, but then mm -hmm. in the 1960s, you had the, the rise. Of, of a of a new Jewish elite, it really the the greater rise of it uh, in the academic world. The media was already there, um, and uh, you know they created a wider context. It wasn't just you know um, one one issue or one thing, but the fact is that public opinion was still very much against immigration, and, and uh, you know he never really treats all of the things that I deal with. And I go back to the 1920s, where the Jewish activists were the pr most prominent uh, activists against the law. 
uh, against the eventual law. And uh, uh, there's a book by uh, Daniel O'Krent that came out recently, 2019, sort of quarter of a century, Henry Cabot Lodge, the immigration restriction leave their allies had to contend with an array of influential organizations dominated by wealthy German Jews. And uh, it was collectively enduring and, and uh, uh, formidable op opposition. And that was in the 1920s. Uh, and so that the immigration wasn't restricted till the 1920s, even though public opinion had turned against it, at least by the 1905. Uh, and uh, it really was a, uh, we talked about it by, uh, I think Nora Cohn's it, it, the American Jewish Committee's efforts in opposition to immigration restriction in the early 20th century, constitute a remarkable example of the ability of Jewish organizations to influence public policy. Despite well, so I guess I guess one thing we have to sort of tease out here is why why would Jews be if we accept it as given that Jews did play a role in a lot of these uh, pro-immigration, open borders kind of sentiments and movements, right? Yeah. What is the what is the impetus behind it? Is it just a bulwark against uh, Anglo-Saxon power? Is it is it simply that they want to undermine the Anglo-Saxon elite? Um, or is it that they're paranoid about some kind of white unification and attack on Jews? Uh, why? Because it's not clear that, you know, bringing in a bunch of, it's not like they're only bringing in Jews, they're bringing in a bunch of other ethnic groups. Um, you know, in, in the case of the early 20th century, it would have been, um, in many cases, like Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans, um, groups that were sort of considered non-white at the time. Um, and later on in the mid-century, you start getting a, a more expansive survey of immigrants, you know, Chinese and, and others. So what is the what is the reasoning behind that? It, it just doesn't seem to uh, immediately make sense that you'd want to bring in all these non-Jews. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I, I think, and I, you know, again, I, I don't have a knockdown argument here, but the fact is a lot of... Um, Jewish activists, both at the time of the 1960s and before, have been concerned about a homogeneous white America. You got to remember, uh, America in the 1950s was about 90% white. Uh, most of the, almost all the rest were black, and and blacks were really uh, you know a, an oppressed group, uh, a low IQ group. It wasn't going to uh, be a threat to anyone. Uh, and so Jewish activists have really um, uh, gone out of the way to to change the demographic balance because they they see a homogeneous white society as dangerous, um, mm. and uh, so they, they rejected the ethnic status quo that they put into place in the 1924 law, and um, uh, I mean even back then Louis Marshall who was the most influential. Uh, activist associated with the American Jewish Committee uh, says we have this room in this country for ten times the population we had. Uh, you know, this so that this was that America had a population of 100 million, uh, and uh, had another Rabbi, Rabbi Stephen Wise, very important, representing American Jewish Congress, a variety of organizations at the House hearings on the 24 Law said the right of every man outside of America to be considered. Fairly and equitably, without discrimination. This goes back a long time, but um, but I have a quote uh, from Culture Critique: "Is uh, Sparkin, 
very interesting book, uh, 1997, um, forget the name of it now, shows that a sense of uneasiness and insecurity pervaded American Jewry in the wake of World War II. Even in the face of evidence that anti-Semitism had declined to the point it became a marginal phenomenon. As a direct result, the primary objective of the Jewish intergroup relations movement, the AJ, the American Jewish Committee, American Jewish Congress, the ADL, after 1945, was to prevent the emergence of the anti-Semitic reactionary mass movement. Right in the 1970s, Isaac describes the pervasive insecurity of American Jews, a hypersensitivity to anything that might be deemed as anti-Semitic. Uh, interviewing noted public men on the subject of anti-Semitism in the early 1970s, he asked, do you think it could happen here? It never was it necessary to find it. In almost every case, reply was approximately the same. If you know history at all, you have to presume that it could happen. Uh, uh, not that it could happen, but it probably will. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, and I quote some Earl Rabb, who's a very prominent Jewish activist and talking about the success in, in, in altering the, the ethnic composition of America. Uh, that It makes it harder to have a homogeneous white movement, pretty obviously, especially when you combine it with all this pathologizing of white identity and white interest, mm. um, which is emanating from the media and the academic world. Now they're teaching in kindergarten, basically. Um, so uh, I think that is, that is the basic motive uh, here for Jewish activism. And, uh, you know, I talked about the President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization. Uh, you know, that was 1952, appointed by Harry Truman, uh, who actually vetoed the 1952 law, which reaffirmed the 1924 law, but that was overridden in Congress massively. There were very opposed to uh, people were, in general, the population were very opposed to immigration during the 1950s. And even in 1965, they had the promise that it wouldn't change the ethnic balance of the country or never would have gotten through. Mm. Uh, and of course, that was a, that was pretty false. But um, the, the uh, President's Commission on Immigration and Naturalization, they viewed changing the racial status quo of the United States as a desirable goal and made a major point of desirability of increasing the total number of immigrants. And I have a page number in their report. Um, in the eye, as Bennett knows, and he was an anti-immigration activist, he said, in the eyes of the PCIN, 1924 immigration, reducing the total number of immigrants was a very bad thing because of their finding that one race is just as good as another. And, and that highlights the importance of, you know, the Boazian revolution in academic uh, psychology and anthropology mm -hmm. is that race is not important. Right. That, you get the uh, blank slateism. Yeah, blank slate and, and mm -hmm. all cultures are equal and all that. and. Uh, uh, so uh, Pat McGarren uh, stated the fundamental, the, the subverting the the, uh, the national origin system, which was put in the place in 1924, would, in the course of the generation or soon, change the ethnic and cultural composition of this nation. And it certainly has. It's been, what, uh, 55 years since then, and, and it's it just changed dramatically. Um, well, and, so, uh, so, go ahead. well, I was just going to say, just sort of like, wrap up where we are in the discussion we started out with sort of the etiology of jewish influence right trying to discuss where does it come from why is it so prevalent um what might be some of the causes right and now we've moved on to sort of the teleology of jewish influence which is like given that jews do have an outstanding influence in yeah. western culture um which by the way they don't in every society so for example well 
Chinese society. <laughs> yeah. There, there are Jewish Chinese. They're not very prominent in the functioning of Chinese society. They're still pretty successful. But um, anyway, the point is, uh, we're sort of moved into with the discussion of demographic change and immigration and various uh, multiculturalism and liberalism. We've moved into the teleology of Jewish influence, which is what are the Jews doing once they get that influence? Um, and it's important to note that, again, the background for this discussion is the proposition that Jews have a group evolutionary strategy. And so we have sort of the the, we have these two components that uh, I, I'm assuming one would be uh, part of the set of traits that constitute uh, specifically Ashkenazi um, ethnic uh, biological substrate gives you a lot of the uh, a lot of the causal factors for for outstanding Jewish influence. And then you have this teleological component, which is sort of the group behavior that might be a result of these um, biological distinctions. Would that be a good way of saying it? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with that. I'm not sure exactly how that. Uh, well, I, I'm trying to tease out. I'm trying to tease out. out how these things are connected. Yeah. And also how much of this is cultural and how much of this is biological. Obviously, the culture is to some extent a derivation of the underlying biology, um, yeah. assuming it's distinct enough, right? Um, and uh, at, least Ash important. at least Ashkenazi are genetically quite distinct yes. um, compared to most groups. Yes. The population genetic studies continue to show that they are separable uh, and that uh, they have, uh, you know, that there's a sort of unity among Jewish groups around the world. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that that's there. But Jewish culture is critically important. And I, you know, when I wrote even my first book, I mean, I, I did that. It started out the first chapter was on Jewish population genetics in the 90s, which was pretty undeveloped at the time. But um, I talked mainly about Jewish uh, um, culture, how it worked out, how they affected their interaction with other groups and around them, how it affected uh, their within the group, intermarriage mm. and dealing with uh, Jewish businessmen and so on, um, and all that. So, I, I you know, it, uh, it's important. You look at a Jewish culture, uh, the, the people who are running Israel now, the ethno-nationalists and, and the Orthodox Jews and uh, Hasidic Jews and all that, they, they are uh, you see their culture. I mean, it's extremely ethnocentric. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think the decline of ethnocentrism among Jews is something you see in some Western cultures now. But, you know, you got to realize one of the main reasons for establishing Israel was to prevent intermarriage. And you go back to the 19, early 19, 20th century, and you see uh, these, uh, these Zionists, uh, these racial Zionists, very strong. You know, race was everything in those days prior to Boas. And uh, a lot of Jews got on board with that. But they concluded, look, we're a race. We want to keep our, our race uh, pure. We don't want to intermarry. Uh, and it's happening way too much in Germany at this time. And one way to do that would be to go to our own land, Zionism. And um, so that was the idea. 
uh, and uh, that is uh, that has happened. I mean, you go to Israel and, and you don't see much intermarriage at all. Uh, and um, what there is is, is really discouraged because the Orthodox run the intermarriage there, and and they're very strict on who can be Jewish and can you know can uh, right. seek refuge in Israel. So so look, I'm not a I'm not an evolutionary biologist, um, and so it's going to be very hard for me to discuss authoritatively anything about the notion of group level selection um as a as a mechanism which which in itself is disputed aside from our conversation about jews and jewishness even group level selection itself is sort of in dispute among among evolutionary biologists i don't know if you had a chance to watch the debate between uh brett weinstein and richard dawkins for example um where uh brett weinstein was making basically the argument that uh that that the holocaust itself was a group evolutionary tactic <laughs> um uh, you know against yeah yeah um against jews um which is very interesting and and you know dawkins was basically just disputing the idea that there could be that there was group level selection in the first place yeah. and that the europeans would act in this way um in concert um, but to Brett Weinstein, he believed that there was no other reasonable explanation for it. So um, I'm aware that this is an ongoing debate within evolutionary biology, and I'm not really equipped to engage with the substance of that component of the argument. Uh, Nathan Koptis, also a philosopher, is not really talking about group level selection itself. Um, but I guess I am curious to see what you think about the dispute over group level selection just as a mechanism. Well, it's been going on for a very long time. I mean, mm. ever since uh, E.O. Wilson wrote his book, uh, yeah. there was a, a guy, uh, I forget his name now, but he had written a, a sort of naive book about group selection uh, among animals, that everything was groups and everything. And uh, E.O. Wilson came down on the side of individual selection. Uh, and it's been a dispute ever since, but mainly, the individual level selection, which is personified by Dawkins now, uh, has won the day uh, at least until the last 20 years or so. Uh, when I wrote my book in 1994, my first book, uh, I was uh, I was on the edge there because I was talking about group selection. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a guy named uh, uh, David Wilson, who I was allied with at the time in the 90s. Um, and I uh, was encouraging me uh, what I was saying. Well, my view has always been cultural group selection. I, I've never, you know, I'm not a, a population genesis mathematical kind of guy. Um, David Wilson's models tended towards that. He tried to say, well, you could have an altruistic gene and it could be selected for under certain circumstances and so on. Uh, and, and then that could spread in the population and you could have an altruistic group. Well, I never saw it that way. I, I saw it as, look, yeah, I, I really came out of a left-wing kind of cultural perspective. And uh, I was in philosophy, as I've mentioned, and and uh, I was sort of hostile to evolutionary technology when it started. But when I, well, all my writing has emphasized culture. And uh, when I got to the Jewish idea, um, I got the idea of group strategy. When I, I, I wrote a paper, a chapter, a bo- book in 1988, when, uh, I wrote a book on social and personality development. And one of the chapters, the last chapter was on, um, groups 
socializing children differently. And I talked about the ancient Spartans and how that really was a group evolutionary strategy where they had very strong group boundaries. They had um, practices within the community to socialize the children a certain way uh, to make them soldiers and, uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, so I, you know, I went with that idea. No one ever disputed it. I got good reviews actually. Um, and I, so I, I thought, what, what are the groups should I study? Well, there's Jews. And uh, they have a huge history, an awful lot of writing. And again, I emphasize culture. You look at my book, uh, on, uh, first book on Jewish, uh, Jews as a group revolutionary strategy. I talk about the practices within the community, uh, the, the marriage uh, practices, the penalties for people who violate uh, community norms, uh, the uh, strictures on what you could do regarding non-Jews. I mean, you couldn't even touch them. You couldn't have wine with them. You couldn't do anything. Uh, and um, so that culture uh, it was, was very important. I also talked about selection for IQ uh, in that book. Uh, and and I, I had a higher estimate for Jewish IQ than uh, Richard Lindsay, but uh, really the same process where, you know, wealthy Jews would have access, would be able to marry their daughters to high achieving uh, scholarly uh, Jewish uh, scholars. And uh, that was the, uh, the, the idea in the Jewish community and it would produce high IQ. It would also produce business acumen and, and all of that as, as genetically based partly. And uh, so that, that was my idea that it was culturally based. And cultural group selection has become way more important now. There's a, a cultural evolution society now, which I'm a member of. Um, and um, David Wilson is on the board there. And uh, people like Peter Richardson, uh, UC, UC Davis, uh, very much on the board of, very much on board with the idea that groups can regulate themselves in such a way as to become vehicles of collection. And that's really essentially what Jews did throughout history. And, and uh, Jews acted as a group. They had group barriers and they acted very cooperatively within the group per force. I mean, if they didn't, they'd be they'd be uh, thrown out. So uh, it's very cultural uh, kind of thing. And so I, 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 from the beginning, I've talked about cultural group selection. The same with Spartans. Uh, I didn't have a genetic argument, but I, what I had was the idea that these people erected a culture that was incredibly efficient in producing excellent soldiers. And they were training from day one, practically, to be soldiers. Mm -hmm. There's no accident that they were, you know, a huge force in the ancient world. You know, they, they fought off the Persians, massively superior numbers, uh, probably saved the West. And, uh, you know, they lost against the Romans, but the Romans were another very militarized culture, Indo-European culture. And uh, I talk about that a great deal in my book on individualism um, and the Greek uh, culture. But... Uh, the point is that, that that is what produces group selection is you produce, you know, cohesive groups that are separate to some extent from surrounding groups and that have very strong socialization pressures and other uh, aspects that, that uh, fit into a coherent worldview. So with Indo-Europeans, very clearly, like the Spartans, yeah. uh, and I suppose the Spartans were on Indo-European, they, they uh, you know, from day one, you were socialized to be a warrior. It was a whole ballgame. And, and that was your route to upward mobility. Uh, at the same time, there was a free market. You could you could choose your leader. You could you could uh, decide who to follow. And uh, so 
Indo-European culture was incredibly effective. I mean, they spread almost to China, down into India, uh, really throughout uh, a lot of the world. And all the European languages come from uh, uh, Indo-European. And uh, it's a very important group to, to study, obviously, mm. and uh, very important to understand Europeans. Uh, there was a, you know, a trace of individualism there, not as strong as what I think of Northern Europeans, but it was there. Yeah. Uh, because you didn't have this tendency towards despotism in Indo-European culture. Right. Um, you, you, you look at Rome for the, the Roman Republic. You had these two consuls and you had, uh, you know, influence of the Senate and, and uh, people had to, re, you know, he only had a one or two year term and that sort of thing. And then, of course, in the, at the empire it was changed. And, you know, all the forces on Rome that happened there, that was, you know, ultimately it, it cost Rome its, its dominance. But um, it, it, it was not that way when it started. And it was for a long time a, a republic. Mm. And uh, and really the model for America, a lot of American founding right. fathers viewed, viewed Rome as uh, sort of the ideal a uh, model for uh, for a society, a republic, not a yes, not an empire, and not a democracy. Right, right. A republic, if you can keep it. If you can keep it, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. So, um, this is sort of a a final point that I just wanted to allow you to address, um, partially because a lot of people are going to be upset that I'm even having this conversation with you in the first place, um. And partially because uh, the accusation has just been made. Um, and so even though myself and Nathan both agree that it detracts from the substance of our of our discussion and from from the merits of uh, arguments on either side, it sort of is something that um, we ought to do just to clear the air or at least to allow you an opportunity to respond in public. So um, I'll get right to it. Uh, people claim that you're an anti-Semite and that the only reason for um, pursuing this investigation in the manner that you have is because of some anti-Semitic beliefs or tendencies or orientation that you have towards the world. I asked Nathan Koftis about this. I asked him his opinion. Um, he gave me an answer. How do you respond to the charge of anti-Semitism? Yeah, he... Uh... He actually said something like that on Twitter, and I responded to him, and I said, look, I was certainly not an anti-Semite when I got into it. I told you how I did. I, I started out with the Spartans, and I said, what's another group I could study? And uh, I really did not become in any sense an anti-Semite until I started reading the literature on immigration and the activism there. And I started to really think of myself saying, these guys are not on our side. And that wasn't until the late 90s. And, uh, you know, then I, you know, people uh, associated with uh, um, some organizations out there who are, that are racialists. Uh, and uh, they contacted me. And, and so I started going to their meetings. But now that wouldn't happen really until 1999, 2000. Uh, and uh, I really did not. I mean, I was a, I started out, as I said, on the left. I was a, a totally a, a uh, on the on the uh, sort of hippie left in the 1960s, mm. and uh, by the 1970s, so I was drifting toward conservatism, and I don't know exactly why, but I felt it was just uh, just more congenial to my personality. I I voted for Gerald Ford. I was thrilled when Ronald Reagan got in, and uh, you know there was no anti-Semitism there, and 
uh, was not mentioned and uh, very pro-Israel and everything. So it's been a gradual process. It, and it's really, in my view, and I told him that on Twitter, he, he just denied it um, without reciting anything. I, you, what you have to do to make that argument is to show that I was involved with anti-Jewish organizations or white racialist organizations prior to 1998 when I wrote my book, my last of uh, the three books. Uh, mm -hmm. And you cannot do that. You cannot do that. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I was not on, on that on that uh, uh, wavelength. People started contacting me, and I was being ignored by the academic world. It wasn't really until 25 or 20 years later uh, that Conference came out with his first critique. And I've been going at it almost seven years now. But uh, um, it wasn't until it was ignored. And so the only people that were, uh, you know, saying good things about my book were people on, on the racialist right. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were inviting me to conferences and asking me to speak. And I said, yeah, why not? There's, it's legitimate to identify as white, to have a sense of white interest. And it's legitimate to say as a white person, these are the people that don't like me and that are compromised on my interests. And that's what I that's my perspective on this, that, that I have you know done this. I, I have you know, associated with people that uh, I know the mainstream media would find it absolutely abhorrent. And, and I was struck by the fact that Kaufman in his last paper uh, mentioned that I'd been on the David Duke show. Oh, well, horrible, horrible. You know, not really saying what I had said on there or David Duke had said on there at the time and what exactly was wrong with it. But the main thing is not really getting the timeline right. I, I defy anyone to find any evidence that I was uh, anti-Jewish or, or uh, had strong white, pro-white racialist feelings before 1998. Kata simply asserts it. That's all it is. And uh, so um, he can he can make the argument if he wants to. I'd like to see it, but it ain't there. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, yeah. So it sounds like basically. <laughs> There was only a certain kind of people, the racialist right, who were willing to receive your arguments in the first place. Yeah. And basically radio silence or just empty accusations from the Jewish community for a very long time until Kaufness came along. Uh, Kaufness has come along and by my estimation seems to be relatively good faith in trying to engage your arguments. Although he certainly can be dismissive in some of the things he says and some of the statements he makes. Um, that being said, I was glad to um, get a chance to talk to you and to give you an opportunity to respond to Nathan Kaufness. Um, I myself am, uh, <laughs> to use the, the Nazi terminology, I'm a Michelin, so I'm only half Jewish. <laughs> Is that right? and, it's, and it's on my father's side. Um, so... Uh, I, I occupy a very strange position where uh, I can talk about these things and it's actually very hard for them to make an accusation like that stick. Um, I'd have to hate, you know, half of myself. They do it. They do it. They, they'll say you're a self-hating Jew. You're an anti-Semitic Jew, whatever. Um, the point is, uh, I was glad to get the opportunity to speak with you. I hope... Uh, it, it won't cause uh, myself or the show too much trouble. I don't think it will. Um, that being said, uh, you know, 
I would like to see if the debate between you and Koftis is ongoing. Koftis has said that his last paper is his last word on it. I don't know if that's actually true. We'll see. Um, and perhaps someone else who hears this or reads through the debate that you've been having with Nathan wants to pick up the ball and yeah. continue the discussion at some point in the future. He, he turned down a, a debate with me at, at a counter-trust conference. I, I can sort of understand that. He, he probably felt that it would be a hostile audience or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's uh, uh, after agreeing to it, actually, and I made a lot of preparations for it and everything, and then I just had to give up on it. But I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I responded to him, I feel enough. Uh, and uh, I haven't, I mean, I tried to respond to this, this most recent paper, uh, but uh um, they won't let me, and that's that's been true every every uh, occasion. The, the academic journal will print him. I'll ask to respond. They'll either say no, or in the case of uh, the journal Philosophia, they accepted it, printed it, and then they retracted it. And yeah. the editor was fired, and the whole thing. It was just disgusting. It's but anyway, I, I know I know Kaufman, uh disapproved of that. But at the same time, there we are. I. I uh, I have not had it. All. So all my responses to Kotler are on my website. I mean, I, I don't have any other forum, really, mm. uh, except uh, putting them on a, 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 a journal that I edit, the Accidental Observer. I, I put it on there, but nobody reads that outside of a few people. So um, I'm very restricted in, in the outlets that I have. Yeah, well, I, I I think it's in Jewish interest to get to the bottom of this. Is really what this is about. So, well, I do too. I think that Jews should could benefit from this. All I'm asking is that they stop doing what they're doing. They start aligning with us uh, and uh, seeing things from our point of view a little bit. Uh, that uh, the immigration to this country is something that is a disaster, absolute disaster for European Americans. They have to realize that. They have to realize that it, it, that uh, the people they're bringing in. And I think they're realizing that now more than ever with the Gaza war, that these people are not necessarily going to be on their side. I mean, look at those protests and they're Palestinian, awful lot of uh, Palestinians there, other Arabs. And now people on the left are turning against Israel. I heard they got these surveys of young people turning against against Jews because Jews support Israel so strongly. Uh, and and so uh, there's a big survey by the New York Times, the Harris Poll. But that, that's a critical issue. Jews have to think about where they stand. Are they on our side or they're against us? And so far, they've been against us. It's pretty clear. Uh, that we're, that's where the the power, the money has been directed against us. And still is to a great extent. So uh, we have to see, they have to decide where they stand. And uh, that would be critical. And I do not want to harm Jews in any way. I do want what they're doing to stop and I want Ameri European Americans to thrive. All right. Kevin McDonald, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, sir. Bye. Goodbye.